all the uh, requirements that the health, count, health department has put on us to show you why I think it's impossible for us to meet them. And so he proceeded to read all the requirements that they had on them. And um, yeah, so turned it into the persecuted church in LA, you know. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, it was. Hey, Nate. Have you gotten a chance to watch the video from Grace yesterday? From Grace Community. Place what you know the you know the court order that came right. So MacArthur took the pulpit before. Um, I was like shocking their music. Um, he took the pulpit before they started the music, and the place that like absolutely ruckus. Actually, no. Sorry, you know what? You know what he ordered? He opened with. Uh, let's see if I can get it right. He was like. I think it's getting a little disorderly in here. And they <laughs> But he was like... <laughs> you really should. You really should. It was... It was different. It was different. There was like a standing ovation and like a whole... It was fanfare for that man. <laughs> it was like Polycarp on the way to Rome. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I I know, know, it's or no, Ignatius, I think, excuse me. Was that Ignatius or yeah. Ignatius or was it Polycarp? Mm -hmm. I want to say it was. Yeah, I, I feel like it was Polycarp. I'm pretty sure it was Polycarp, I'm thinking of. Anyway, so he got a bunch of letters written to him on his journey. That'd be so all right, we should probably start. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. See you guys. You have something you need to share with the class? Sure. So I went ahead and um, gave um, a handout, um, which for our purposes tonight, our, is going to be our quote-unquote outline. As I was as I was thinking about this text, um, I, I realized, and I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, that John really is more. You're going to have more flow charts with John than you are Roman, you know, one A B. Like that's more of Pauline, whereas John kind of looping topics really lends itself to flow charts. And so I, I thought that would be a more helpful outline because it's not sequential. It's sort of bouncing back and forth. And so that's the best I can do for um, working on something to flow through the text. To begin tonight, um, during my, our last teaching occasion, I began by taking an excursion into one of my very favorite Old Testament texts, which was in Ecclesiastes. And for, for, that, um, for that time, I read 
uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Um, when we were in this text, I emphasized the relational nature of human beings and the fact that we have a natural capacity for relationship and a, a need for a relationship with God. Tonight, I'm going to continue in that same passage and finish the book of Ecclesiastes to really highlight where we're going for this evening. Right after verse 13, it says, For God will bring, in, bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I want you to notice that not only is relationship essential to the um, that interpersonal connection with God, but also judgment. Judgment is also a fundamental aspect of our interaction with God. Um, I would say that it, judgment is perhaps one of the greatest themes throughout the entire Bible. In the Old Testament particularly, the prophets are continually mentioning something, uh, some coming day of the Lord. Um, you've probably read that phrase at some point, um, or the New Testament equivalents of it. And it really seems to be one of those overarching biblical themes. If any of you have been around like a Christian college, you've probably heard of classes like themes in the New Testament or themes in the Old Testament. And I would count the day of the Lord as one of those larger overarching themes. There, there seems to be a sense of immediacy drawn to it. I'm going to point out a few texts that I think are relevant to our study tonight. Um, I promise this is relevant, by the way. We'll get there. Isaiah chapter 3, 12, 19 through 22. I'm sorry, thir uh, 12 and then 19 through 22, that's my bad. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule them. The pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the omelets. Is that, th is that three? Yeah. Might be four, I apologize. Um, there is no 19 through 24. Let me find it. I apologize. Five, it it might be it. Sh it should be. T should be entitled. Dear um, Lord, dear Lord, destroy. Yeah, it looks good. Two, two. I'm sorry. <laughs> two, twelve. Right. So for the Lord of Hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And the people shall enter the caves of rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to, the ter to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats. Um, I want you to notice that phrase where it says that people will enter the caves of the rocks, the holes of the ground. Does that sound familiar with your knowledge of the New Testament? Does that, is that reminiscent of any other passage that you're aware of? Sure, and that's reflected um, what that parallel passage almost in Revelation chapter 6 where um, they're recognizing the wrath of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Joel 2, 28 through 32. This is a passage that has somewhat of a fulfillment uh, depending on your view of part of this passage at the day of Pentecost. And then um, you see some very eschatological themes with the um, judgment to follow. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. 
traditions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, for the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in the Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there should be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. We see hints of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we see that God is going to intervene and judge, and we see that there's going to be repentance and restoration of fellowship between God and national Israel in the Old Testament. But in my understanding of the Old Testament, there is something that is not foreseen. The, the elements of the gospel in this interme, intermediary time period in which the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, though in veiled form mentioned in the Old Testament, only really became clear as we move into the New Testament era. Uh, era. Ephesians 3, 1 through, 1 through 6. I think this is a really fascinating bit. The gospel is continued, especially by Paul, is referred to as the mystery Um, the mystery, because it was something that was not clear in the Old Testament. We knew that there was going to be judgment. We knew that there was going to be a time when we have restored fellowship with God. But we didn't really get a great picture of that, including the Gentiles. And we didn't get a fantastic picture of the cross. We didn't really see a first time Christ coming and dying and a second time. It it all appears to be one in that veiled form in the Old Testament. And so as we get into the New Covenant, you really start to see how it's parsed out and you you see how God is bringing together Gentiles and Jews into one family before that uh, time period of judgment, the day of the Lord. Ephesians elaborates on the gospel being a mystery. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in grief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight, my, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy, holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There really wasn't a sense that there was just going to be this togetherness that God was going to include more people. And, and this is why I, th- I think the statement that the, that the New Testament is all eschatology is a very accurate statement. Commonly, you hear that we are in the last days, okay, in, in the New Testament. And you're, you're like, why is that? Well, when Messiah was supposed to come, then stuff was going to start going down with the day of the Lord. Judgment was going to come. But he said, go, you know, go share the gospel. And so the early Christians really lived in expectation, oh, we got this time frame. We can go out, witness, Jesus is coming at any moment. Messiah is coming to judge. And so I think it's a little hard for us to grasp being, you know, what was 2000 some year, you know, like, how is that? But there was a sense of immediacy with that Jewish background as best as I can understand it. Now, I want to take us over to Revelation for just a moment. First John has a fair bit about judgment, which is why I wanted to give this a little bit of background. Looking at the Isaiah passage, looking at the Joel passage, 
that we just read, I want you to hear the similarities between those passages in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Sounds very reminiscent of Joel. And the stars of uh, the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree which sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and great ones and generals and rich and powerful and everyone and slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And who can stand? Um, so I, I don't claim to have it all down yet, but this is, you know those once you see it, you can't unsee it memes and stuff like that? This is really, once you start seeing all these eschatological themes from the Old Testament through Jesus' ministry, what the cross means in terms of final redemption, it's... Um, it's very important. It's in, I'm starting to see the New Testament continuation off of a Hebrew theme of resurrection and day of the Lord more than I ever have. And so even the gospel sort of falls under that because God is sending out the gospel to prepare men for the day of the Lord so that they can be prepared for that day of wrath. So while it's hard to um, live in expectation of this, I think a proper appreciation for this will really alter our experience with the text over in 1 John. Um, I, spent, I have spent a fair amount of time here introducing the day of the Lord um, because I, I wholeheartedly and thoroughly believe that when we grasp the nature of that judgment, what we're about to read here um, is going to be a lot more sweet. For me, reading 1 John 4 after studying a bit of eschatology was one of those times where you, you kind of, like I was personally sitting on my floor and you're just like kind of stunned. You're like, like, I don't know exactly what to ask and I don't completely understand it, but I'm like, wow, that's, that's cool. Like you're really thankful and yet you have no idea fully what you're thankful for. You're just like, this is really good, and I appreciate it. And, and this is what and I'm, I, I'm learning, and I, I'm, I'm developing that. But really, after you know, just coming off time spending in Revelation to a passage about how, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of judgment, that meant a lot more because I was like, wow, I get the comprehensiveness of the judgment. I get the get the magnitude of the judgment that God is going to deliver, and yet we don't need to be afraid. And so I think it will, will really move you to thanksgiving, um, more so if you have a, a little bit of understanding of the broader Day of the Lord theme that this is sort of backdropped on. So um, last time we spoke, we had the flow of love from God to us and then out to others. We kind of had that analogy of the cloud, if you recall. And tonight we're going to get a new flow delivered to us. As, as you have already noticed, I'm sure John's stuff flows more than it does outline. So um, it, it's just kind of an interesting stylistic note for me. Um, would somebody be willing to read 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, and we will get moving for this evening. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now let me ask you, does that sound familiar from anywhere else in the book okay and i do this every time where is it familiar from 
just to speed you up, chapter three, somewhere in there. Yes, that is not the one I was thinking of. Um, try it, verse 24. <clears throat> you are incorrect. <laughs> uh, I mean, but it, it, uh, it's not incorrect either because there is a lot of looping. There. <laughs> trying to say it nicely. There's not a wrong answer. <laughs> I got you, Sam. So Thank you. Um, so w- let, me, let me ask this question since we let the cat out of the bag on that one. What, what is always linked to mutual abiding, okay? It says, we dwell in God and God dwells in us. Both of these passages follow up with the same thing. What is that? Uh, he's given to us. Yes, he's given us his spirit. Whenever it's mentioned that we're dwelling in him and he's dwelling in us, there's always that follow-up of the uh, spirit of God residing in us. The first observation I would like to make from this is that it's, this is a, and this, Chloe, we were having this conversation, this is a really, um, to me, this is a strong evidence um, for deity of the Spirit. When it says, God dwells in us, and then turns around and says, the Spirit dwells within you, I see that parallelism as a very strong argument for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, um, I, I think it's quite interesting um, that John emphasizes that it goes both ways. It's not that we just dwell in God or that God just abides with us. He is sure to mention a couple times that it's going both ways. And, and I don't necessarily have a dogmatic answer here, but why do you think that is? I've come up with a couple, but why do you think John takes a moment to emphasize the back and forth of it? Well, instead of, like, he he could say, by this we know that we abide in him because he has given us of his spirit. Or he could say, by this we know that he in us because he's given us his spirit. But he's sure to say it from both angles, that we abide in him and he abides in us. Why why do you think that's an important distinction to make? Maybe it's just, like, the nature of spirit, I guess. What do you mean by that? I probably shouldn't say that without... Okay. Uh, it makes me feel like that there's a, I'm sorry, um, that there's like a relationship. It's not just a one way like, okay, God just gives me everything, or I just give God everything that I am. It's like, hey, I exist in you because you are of me, and I'm of you. Like, there's a relationship there. Uh, I'm I'm inclined to agree with that interpretation. I when I read it, it kind of gave you. You've, I imagine I'm not the only one in this, but you've been in relationships where. One way or the other, either you're pouring in, you're pouring in, you're pouring in, mm-hmm. and there's no, it's not real. It's not like a both ways relationship. Yeah. And, on, you know, unfortunately, I think we're on the other side, sometimes too, we, people are pouring into us and we really don't give anything back. There are plenty of one way relationships that we experience, but that is not what is typical of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are supposed to be actively, and we as Christians, we are actively involved in our relationship with him, and he is actively involved 
with us. And so I, I think it's important to notice that he is saying that it is a two-way street in this relationship. <clears throat> um, last time we we discussed this, though, I I brought this question up, and I think it's the only natural question, and it, it I put this on your handout. When it says mutual abiding, and then it says, how do we know we're mutual abiding because of the spirit that he's given us? What would be the very next question that you would ask? How do we know we're Right, absolutely. So you're like, cool, mutual abiding because we have the spirit. And then you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> I think that's a fair question. I think John provides plenty here to address that. So from there in this passage, we see John kind of bouncing back and forth between two different ways in which we know we have the spirit. Um, the first, um, the first one is in verse 14, if someone would go ahead and read that. So, we live in him and he, he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So the first thing that I notice in this text is as one of the roles of the Holy Spirit as a demarcating factor is if we have the Holy Spirit, we have a proper response to the gospel. Now, obviously, there are Trinitarian things that I think are implicit in this passage, but honestly, I don't see that as the emphasis of this passage. It is a text you can look at and see some Trinitarian flair to, but I really see this as a recognition that the Spirit um, will enlighten our eyes to the gospel. The Father sending the Son to save the world is a reference to the gospel. If there's one thing we've hammered home throughout this series, it's that saying yes to the gospel genuinely means saying yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as well. John has been crystal clear that we cannot live in sin and continue to call ourselves a Christian. Similarly, it is impossible to believe the gospel without the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one becomes a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit's work. No one says Jesus is Lord apart from the gospel. I'm assuming when I say Jesus is Lord, it's a I like in Romans it talks about um, you know if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord you know that passage um, I under I've studied those a little bit and I understand it as to be both a reference to deity and as um, sovereign over your life in particular so yes I, I understand that to be more than just he's God yes yes um, the second thing that I think the Spirit does um, out of this passage, I think it's quite obvious. Um, I might have skipped over. Yeah, I didn't, we didn't hand this verse out. I'm sorry about that. Um, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The second work of the Holy Spirit in our heart is that we affirm the deity of Christ. Now, this is something that we have been over recently, so I won't belabor the point. But if we confess that Jesus Christ is God and Lord, then this is clear evidence that we are filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that we abide in Christ. Um, And I, I do want to be quick to say on the other side of this coin that if we deny 
that Jesus' lordship over our life, if we do not believe that Jesus is God, then there is no sense in which we can claim to be a Christian. Um, as we were discussed when we were last time together, God coming to earth and dying for our sins and for our salvation is the highest point of love that we could ever imagine. And if we reject the gospel, if we reject the deity of Christ, then um, <clears throat> this is not something that can qualify for Christianity. And this leads us very, this, this flow once again, right into verse 16. Um, the high point is the gospel, God coming to earth in human flesh, is the highest demonstration of love. That's what we discussed out of the passage last time. And we see John rehashing that theme in verse 16. Somebody, verse 16. <laughs> and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Um, because of God's work here, we, we see two words here, and I thought this was noteworthy as well. Um, we have come to know and to believe. He uses two different words there. And I, I stopped and I was like, why? I mean, why would you use two different words? You're saying something similar, right? Well, the first word there is gnosko. Um, that is the word for knowledge. If you're familiar with debates regarding election in Romans, that uh, foreknowledge, pro-gnosko, you know, we, we talk about that word fairly often. Gnosko is the word that um, is used in the Septuagint, I believe, for Adam knew his wife. It's an intimate, firsthand, experiential knowledge. It's not like the I, I memorized facts in a textbook. It's like, wow, I experienced that, and that's how I learned about it. As a Christian, when you come to believe the gospel, you experienced what it was like to have the love of God poured out on you. You know firsthand what it means to be in a relationship with God. You know firsthand what it means to be loved by God. Just because you may have seen that Jesus was sent by the Father, as verse 14 says, does not necessarily mean that you've experienced that love that God has for you, just because you, I mean, plenty of people know what the Bible teaches regarding Christ coming to earth, but that does not mean that they have experienced the love of God in their life. Second word there, believe. Um, when we were in Ghana, we went to um, Pistis Christian Church, I believe. That's the that's the root word for this, Pistis. Um, that's the thing that's translated faith. Now, obviously, it's not it's not just that simple little word. Word it's um, it's a nuance of that in the language, but the the idea here is faith. So um, it's as if to say, there, this is the component of belief in God, our faith in Him. It means to be persuaded of something. So you have the idea that you you um, you've experienced it and you know it. And you're also, you also intellectually are believing it and you're placing your faith in it. So it's not one or the other. You, you know it by, to be true because of what you've lived and you believe it. And you believe it. And that's, that's as simple as it is. Um, and John then rehashes the idea we covered last week that God by essence is love. We know that Jesus coming to save us was a demonstration of this love and thus we live in this love. Now, what's the next phrase that follows in that passage? God abides in him. This is the second working of the spirit. We have the doctrinal component, of course, but we also have the fruit of the spirit, the chief of which is love. And so you, you, you have the split. If you just pause for a moment and look at the flow of this passage, you see that doctrinal split. 
his transition from that doctrine into love. And now we have two things from the spirit, proper doctrine and proper moral living. Uh, that sounds pretty familiar as we've been through this book, you know, this constant flipping back and forth between good doctrine and appropriate living. Okay, I, I took this one. So this is, of course, nothing new. Um, uh, we've we've been through this. So, but this is new. We're you know we're we're on that the spiral of the screw, and we're about to go to the next level. And so this is the part that takes us where we haven't been before, as John sort of burrows down one last time into this idea of love. And by the way, you might want to shed one tear because we're leaving his last real section on love here in the book. So we've, um, we've exhausted all that John has to say on love for the 17th time. So this is, this is a really incredible final take on love. And I think if you want to wake up now, this is a great time to do it. Um, by this is love perfected with us. Love is perfected with us. What did we say that word perfected meant last time? Completed. Completed. Anyone have, just trivia. Um, anyone remember? What was the Greek root for that word? Oh, I know. Tell us. Tell us. Telomeres. Remember that whole conversation? Biology, y'all. About threw me under the bus for that one. So, tell us. This is the end game, the completion, the final stage, the end of the race. What, what was the first thing? That, what was the first tell us? that was mentioned of God's love for us. Okay, where does this? Yeah, where does it say, where, last time it first said for- John 2, 5 was the first one. Go to, go to verse um, 12 in chapter four. What is, what is its, what was our interpretation of um, the completion of God's love in our life? Well, it's its final stage. Basically, like us loving one another. Like if, if, yes. that, if that happens, then his love has been made complete. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has reached its final stage in us when we love other people. That was what we said was our first stage of completion. Now John adds a really, really cool second telos. Um, and I, I think this is, this is, this is astounding. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence. This is the same word that was used back in chapter 2, verse 28, when it talked about his coming. Um, we have confidence at his coming, and there was also the word when it said we can have confidence or boldness in prayer. Same word. Um, and finally, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. And I want to stop right here and say that this should be astounding to you. Hebrews chapter 10, 30 through 31. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have you ever thought about why we're not supposed to take vengeance on people? This is the entire reason right here, because the day of the Lord is coming. God will have a final day of judgment where he will take vengeance on people. And so our job is not to usurp the place of God, but to rather love people and let him take care of the rest. It's an absolutely frightful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, as Hebrews puts it. But 
Beloved, instead of being under his outstretched arm of judgment, we are under his wing of protection. Instead of being under his hand in judgment, we are in his hand where no one can pluck us out. And we are not only there, but we're in his heart and we abide in him there. This is one of the proofs that we have the spirit. We have confidence in the face of judgment. This is not to say that we don't fall into fearing at times. I I think that's understandable. Um, We've said that love is an evidence of having the spirit. And we certainly don't love perfectly all the time. But our habitual pattern of life, if we have the spirit, is love for others. In the same way, at times, I think we may struggle and we may be like really intimidated and fearful of that coming day of judgment. But by and large, as Christians, we have confidence in the day of judgment. And that doesn't mean that we don't have times where we fall into lack of confidence, but by and large, we can be confident. We can say this with Paul, 2 Timothy 1.12. This is a beautiful, beautiful comment by Paul here. <clears throat> I know what I have believed, and I'm convinced that God will protect me all the way through his fierce wrath. That's what Paul says. He, I know what I've believed, and I, you know, I believe that he's going to keep me through what I've committed against that day, you know, that God's going to protect me in that day. Now, this is where it really gets crazy. <clears throat> because as he is, so also are we in the world. Why should we have confidence? Why can we have confidence? Why shouldn't we fear? God is a consuming fire. Who can stand before him? Malachi um, 3, 1 through 2, 4, 1 through 3. We're going to read that. That's exactly what it says. Who can withstand God? Who can stand before God on that day of judgment? Malachi. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant that you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise, healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. There is one who can stand in the judgment of God. There is one who is holy enough and perfect enough, and obviously that is Christ. But this is what's amazing. As he is... As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. As sure as Jesus can stand before the judgment of God, so can we. As sure as Christ can stand before the judgment of God, so can we. As Christ has, you know, that divine transaction, that imputed righteousness that we have as a result of the cross, that is the degree to which we can be confident. You're like, I'm not near as perfect as Christ is, but as he is, so also we are in this world. We're obviously striving, we're still improving, but before God, when we were saved, our justification happened, and at that moment, remember the already not yet tension we talked about? We were already perfected at that moment, and yet not yet, we're still striving to be perfect. Before God, we're perfected, we're completed because of Christ's 
work on our behalf. And I would, I would support that with Romans if you wanted a little bit more time with that. We have been made like Christ in God's eyes and can thus withstand the judgment of God just as sure as Christ can. God would have to condemn Christ to hell in order to condemn us to hell. Do you, like, do you, do you understand the gravity of that? That's how sure we are and how much confidence we can have in Christ. It would take God literally condemning his own son to banishment because before him, we have that same righteousness imputed to us, which boggles my mind because I know how imperfect I am. Now I know how much I deserve to be there and how much Christ doesn't. And this is truly, as Romans 11 puts it, the the graciousness, the mercy and wrath of God on us, mercy and on them, wrath. Um, I, one of the passages that I couldn't just, I just could not help but insert here, um, Romans eight thirty one through uh, 39. I, I understand that we read this passage frequently, but if you really get tired of us reading this passage here at Quinnity, you can go chew on a tree. This is a great passage. <laughs> Romans eight thirty one through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. It's fantastic. And if it's ever in context, this is it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, me, how will he not, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is in, uh, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distresses or persecution, or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how intimately tied our justification and our future glorification, I skipped over the golden chain, but do you see how closely tied our future glorification is with Christ being glorified in that passage? It's so intimately tied that for us, we have become one with Christ. You know, that's a pretty familiar concept. And that's, that's true going forward as well into judgment. And so we can have great confidence. And I think that should, it's an encouragement to my heart. Um, you know, the more you study this, the more intimidating it can be when you see how high and holy a standard we're called to. And yet, simultaneously, there we are, the Holy Spirit gives us confidence in the day of judgment. So we have this tension once again. Um, now we're going to go to the flip side, um, verse 18. Whoever has that one. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. If, if we are fearing, this reveals that there's something fundamentally off and wrong with our understanding of salvation. <clears throat> now, again, I think we fall into fear at times, but if we... If, but this is a really good way to assess. 
Do you have continued unabated fear about judgment of God on you, or do you experience the rest that God has prepared for our hearts as Christians? If you are continually in a state of fear of judgment, that may be a sign that something is seriously amiss with your walk with God. Christians are characterized by them knowing confidently that God loves them and will not condemn them in the final analysis. I, I feel bad for this poor verse. It gets manhandled all the time into places where it never should have been about how we're not supposed to fear man and stuff, you know. But this is really a verse that gets ripped out of context. But when we know God's love, fear gets pushed aside. There is no room for fear of eternal punishment to differentiate it from fear of the Lord being respect in a loving relationship with God. If you fear, love has not reached its completion in you. This, this doesn't mean that you're automatically not a Christian, but if, if you fear habitually, this should be something that you say, hmm, let me, let me think about that. Let me just take a moment to assess here. Second Timothy 1.7, here's the entire reason why. Going back up the flowchart, if we have the spirit, we're not gonna fear, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us Right. This, the, the Holy Spirit that he's given us is not one that inspires fear, rather power, love, sound mind. The, the whole idea there is the confidence that we can have. The Spirit is not producing timidity and fear, but confidence and boldness in a loving relationship with God Almighty, knowing that our sins have been forgiven as a result of Christ's work. If you fear, just think about this, just following with John's logic. If you fear... How can you say that you have first had firsthand experiential knowledge of God's love? When you put it like that, it's kind of like that, that doesn't make sense. If, you, if you've really experienced God's love and you know he loves you because you've experienced that, then how can you fear? And if you're habitually fearing, then the obvious question is, have you experienced his love for you? And I think that's the point John's trying to drive home by contrasting fear and love. Now, once again, famously, John's going to transition um, into verse 19. Verse 19. You're fine, no worries. We love because he first loved us. If you have indeed experienced love, that is going to result in love. As we have hammered time and time and time again, first, this means that God is sovereign in salvation, which produces a heart of love in us. But this also means that, and I think this is really the emphasis, this also means that if God has sovereignly saved you, that you have a heart that is going to be producing full of love. You know, we, we emphasize this, I think that for those of us who use this verse in conversations regarding Calvinism, this verse really gets emphasized on the God's initiation in love. And I think that's a perfectly fair application of this text. But if you look at it, the whole point is that if God has loved you and initiated that love, then you're going to love too. So I, I want to be, be careful here. Great theology in this verse to talk about Calvinism and election and all these fun things that we love to discuss. But if you divorce that from the second half of the verse where it says that, you know, we're going to love, then you've missed the point. You gotta have both. God loves us. And you'd think that's where the verse ends for half of our conversations. But 
that is supposed to go somewhere. That's not supposed to just stay in this dead cesspool of love flowing in. You know, we're supposed to have that flowing out. And so you have this theological and um, moral component as well. I just want to encourage you, if your theology does not result in action, I would encourage you to rethink your theology just a bit. Your theology should lead you to a changed life, okay? And if it doesn't, really think about that because they cannot be divorced from one another. Verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. How many would say that they love God from theologians to the uneducated, yet they don't love their brother? They may take, and this is more sort of the realm where I'm, where I engage in. You see theologians all the time who study this for a literal living, and yet they don't have any love for their brother. So they love studying, they love gaining knowledge. I get that. I, I really do understand that. But if you don't have any love for your brother, then that makes no difference from being completely uneducated and be like, yeah, I love God. And then going out and not loving your brother. Both both sides are just as um, heinous. It, it may be the pew warmer in the back of the church who says they love God but don't love their brother. And yet they're like, I love God because I'm consistent at church. Here's the truth. If you think that you have known the love of God yet you don't care for your brother, then it says that you're a liar, plain and simple. You can't play games with God and get away with it. It's much easier to be consistent with things that we can see. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you find it easier to spend time with somebody in this room and stay focused the entire time than it is, like, let's, would, you, would you find it easier to hang out with the person you're closest to in this room for an hour or to pray for an hour? I would suggest that most often it's easier to focus when we're with somebody face to face, you know, your mind wanders, you, you're back on Instagram, you don't even know why you're on Instagram when you're praying, you know, like just random junk and you're like on topic. And you, you really struggle, that mental battle, and you're like, I read a page. I don't remember what any of it said. <laughs> you know, th these sort of struggles that we have, you know, it's very hard to engage with something we can't see. It's naturally easier for us to engage with things that we can see, like people. And so the obvious experiential argument there is if you can't love the people around you, where the opportunities for service and you see somebody in need and you see somebody down or you, whatever, if you can't figure out how to love them and they're right in front of you, your brothers, your sisters, Ain't no way that you're gonna love God. That doesn't even make sense. The best analogy I could think of this, and Nathan will probably appreciate this more than, than the rest of you. Um, if I if I could not beat FIFA on novice level, <laughs> and then confidently and would, I was like serious, I was like, but oh yeah, I can beat it on legendary for sure. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That, that's stupid. Like, like, I'm serious. Like, when it comes to video games, it becomes a very apparent analogy. You're like, oh, yeah, I lost uh, to the easiest level, but I'm, <laughs> I got this. I'm totally going to own this, like, most challenging thing ever, you know? That doesn't even make sense. And 
you know, you're annoyed. You're annoyed with somebody at school or at church. You can't find in your heart to love them. And yet you think you're going to win on legendary by loving God. That doesn't, that really doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. And I think, I think that it just is something we read over very easily. But when you put it in other terms that you think you're going to pass the final exam and you can't pass the first quiz, you know, these, these sort of things in life make it much more apparent. I, I think that reveals how foolish we are for that matter. Um, John then closes this section with a restatement of that glorious command which he began this whole thing with. Um, verse 21. And this commandment have we from him that he who loved God loves his brother also. That's pretty simple. I mean, I don't know how you can interpret that <laughs> any more obvious way than what it says. Um, if you love God, you have to love the people around you. This is not an old commandment. It's not an old idea whatsoever at all. Jesus said it very clearly, you know, when he was summarizing the law. How did he summarize the law? Let's start there. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. The second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. If you're going to love God, you're going to love people, plain and simple. Now, allow me to add these two passages. Yes, yeah, sir. Um, I was listening to a message on that and this. Um, commenting on how loving the Lord your God with all your heart is summed up with the first four or five of the Ten Commandments and then the rest are the loving your neighbor as yourself is summed up in the rest of the Ten Commandments and so Jesus was saying like yeah the first ten first five are the most important and then he's like and then the next are the last five <laughs> so he's yeah. just like all of them yeah uh, that's very true it just if you throw it under that umbrella of love, and this is why, this is really tricky, by the way, if you start thinking about this too hard, this gets hard. Um, this is why the law of Christ in the New Testament is also referred to as the law of love. Because are there specific commands? Yes. Is it about the command specifically? No. And yet, if we follow the law of love, all the commands will be accomplished. So this is one of those New Testament themes where done, legalism doesn't even make sense. So I think that's an interesting note. Let me, let me finish with these two passages here. Um, let's, let's go ahead and turn over to Amos chapter 5. This is a really good warning. And I, I think this is unfortunate. This passage has kind of become um, a little hyper-analyzed in context of the social justice movement, but it's still a wonderful passage. Um, if Christians take comfort in the coming day of the Lord, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. We can have comfort in the fact that God is going to judge between us and the wicked around us. But if you're not loving other people, if you're not seeking justice on behalf of other people, and yet you want the day of the Lord to come, you're an idiot. Because that day of the Lord is coming for you because you're not actually on God's team. This is exactly what Amos was dealing with. Israel was like, yeah, day of the Lord, where we're gonna crush everyone else. And God was like, because you're doing that hot? You know, it's coming for you too. And I, I think that's an appropriate warning for us as Christians, not to get caught up in arrogance. Read Romans 11. It's a really, really good um, comment on this. Don't get caught up in necessarily 
being like, yeah, judgment's coming. Humble, be humble. By, God, by God's grace, there go I. You know, you, you could easily fall into that. Uh, Amos 5, 18 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house, <laughs> or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despite your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice fall down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God didn't care about them going to church. I didn't really care that they sung a lot or listened to a lot of sermons. He cared that they did justice by the people around them and sought righteousness practically in their life. His wor the worship was annoying to him. It's like somebody coming to you and saying, I love you, after they've just stabbed you in the back 17 times. And you're like, not only is that disingenuous, but almost hurtful. You're like, excuse me? It's almost painful to hear that because you know how hypocritical it is. Um, I want to turn to a passage that I think combines the elements from 1 John. In this, in this passage in 1 John and in this passage that we're going to, we see final judgment, Jesus, the Father, true Christians, false Christians. You know what Jesus will look like at the final judgment or will look at in the final judgment? He will look at whether or not you loved him. But do you know how he will know whether or not you loved him? if you loved others. Brothers and sisters, if you have genuine faith, the Spirit will, um, the Spirit has been given to you. If the Spirit has been given to you, then you will bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, you will love others. And if you love the brothers, you will directly love Christ, which he will take note of during the final judgment. Okay? Often you hear that we're saved by faith, and yet you hear comments about how we're judged by our works by God. Very simple when you think that faith always will produce a life of good works. God can look at your life and see if you had genuine faith in him, okay? Don't get caught up in that faith works paradigm. It's a rather simple interpretation. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 25, and this is a passage that we're gonna end on. Um, this is one of those that I, I just wanna throw this out here. If this if you are internalized passages better by closing your eyes and meditating as one has read, this is certainly one that is worthy of that. If not, I completely understand. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 25, 31, all the way through 46. And it's a long passage, but I think you're going to see all of these verses from 1 John shoved into Jesus' teaching about what's going to happen when he comes for us. <clears throat> starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. <laughs> this is what's astounding to me. The righteous don't even know this off the top of their head. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away <clears throat> into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You can almost hear the unrighteous saying, but we would have done it to you if we had known it was you. And the response from First John would be, no, you wouldn't have. If you didn't do it to the people around you that you can see, you would not have done it for Christ himself. If you, being an unregenerate person, still have a heart that is fundamentally selfish and set on your wicked ways, it wouldn't matter if it was Christ himself before you in order to be genuinely sacrificial. And so I think the verdict is very, very simple, that we need to go and to love others around us with a proper motivation and a proper heart in doing so. so. That is all I have. Um, Hayden, do you want to pray to finish us? your word. Uh, I thank you for all these opportunities, these people you've placed in our lives, people that are made in your image, uh, that we can uh, love you through loving them and help us do that every day to see these opportunities and uh, to remember that we're doing this for you. Help us to see others as you see them and uh, please protect us as we return home tonight and uh, bless us in the coming week and keep these mind, these words in our minds and in our hearts and in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.